This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm your host, Bill Radke. If you love the spray paint on Seattle buildings and walls and signs, and who doesn't, then you'll be glad to hear the city's anti-graffiti ordinance has been struck down. We'll discuss that uh, with our panel of journalists because we are going to make you smart about what happened this week. I've got Seattle Times transportation reporter David Croman sitting feet from me. Welcome back, David. Hi. Freelance health journalist Joanne Silberner. Nice to see you again. Nice to be here. Seattle Channel host and producer Brian Callanan. Thanks for coming, Brian. Thanks for having me, Bill. And you can stream this show and look at these lovely faces on YouTube or Facebook. Just search KUOW Public Radio. Topic number one. On this program, we grown-ups often talk climate change, right? Fires and smoke and melting glaciers and suffering wildlife. Think about how climate change looks to a child. When we're gone, our kids will probably have it worse than we do, and they're too young to vote on policies that affect them. Interesting approach this week. About a dozen young Montana residents, one as young as five years old, were in court suing their state for not acting on climate change. Here is 19-year-old plaintiff Grace Gibson Snyder describing the value of Montana's natural beauty. Everyone's life in Montana is an appreciation for, and maybe even more importantly, a dependence upon the natural environment. So many people subsist upon agriculture and ranching. And so there is this super deep generational cultural connection to the outdoors, to a depth and an intensity that I haven't yet found anywhere else. Joanne, there have been similar climate change lawsuit attempts. I think this is the first to go to trial. What is their claim here? Well, in this case, in Montana, there's a guarantee in the Constitution to uh, clean air and the right to live a healthful life. So they're going straight. It's a constitutional question for the state. There's a federal case that uh, was interrupted but is going on now in Oregon. There could be a case someday in Washington. I think there once was. And the, what the group that's bringing this case is talking about is there's a guarantee. There was a promise, a legislated uh, rule to bring down greenhouse emissions. No one knows it by 2020. No one knows it's been met yet because the Department of Ecology hasn't come out with the numbers. But when those numbers come out, if the state hasn't come through or if the laws haven't come through well enough or the policies to bring down those emissions, they'll have a case here too. And I just I just thought it was interesting with this one, Joanne. It seemed like specifically this lawsuit was focused on the state law that's in place in Montana that – prevents agencies basically from considering the effects of greenhouse gases when they issue permits for fossil fuel development specifically. That's a new tack on this legally, and I think that's really interesting and and something that I would say is a little different about Montana. That industry is a lot more grown up there than it is here in Washington. Talking about coal? Yeah, talking about – I mean, we've got some refineries up in Whatcom County, but other than that, that's not really an industry here at all. And so watching that legal tack here in Montana – could it be replicated here? Maybe not exactly, but it's certainly I, I, part of this overall effort to try to legislate climate change, and, and that's very difficult to do. 
Yeah. And it's an interesting combination because they've got climate change, they've got children's rights, and they've got human rights in there. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what they're playing on. And I think one of the reasons they picked kids uh, to focus on is they've got a longer lifespan technically, and they're going to be dealing with this for a lot longer than, than I am. Yeah. And the harms that they're talking about, because a plaintiff has to have standing, right? It has to be um, damaged in some mm-hmm. way, to suffer in some way. So they're talking about... Um, Agriculture, I think that plaintiff mentioned fishing, wildlife, recreation, uh, air quality, right? What you what you have to breathe, um, drought stressing people's cattle, floods eroding riverbanks. So you know, shortened recreation seasons a big deal in Montana. So these are some of the harms they're claiming. The state lawyers say that Montana's contribution to climate change is minuscule. How can you show that any one state's actions threaten? directly threaten your health or livelihood in these ways? Well, coal regulations, you know, regulations surrounding coal mining in Montana. That would be one way. But but can you limit that? I guess what they're trying to say, the scope of climate change, it doesn't really stop at a state's borders, I, th- I think, is a part of this. Yeah, it's not like coal dust making right. you, you unhealthy. Right. Well, the Oregon case is a federal one. So that'll evidently end up on Merrick Garland's desk someday. So we'll see where that goes. Hmm. Well, what about Washington? We've got destructive fires and smoke and stressed out wildlife. Do do plaintiffs have a case here? They could, uh, I, I guess, is one way to look at it. I was looking at this uh, this week just with regard to what the Seattle City Council is working on, and they talked about this in their public safety committee, just the arrival of the smoke season that's going to be coming up here. And I think everybody's heard about it. It's not going to be a good one. And so how do we honestly protect against that when we live in a city where – Maybe 50% of the people have an air conditioner or an air filtration system. It's it's difficult to do that. And so what the city's trying to do is create some sort of emergency plan. And it's a pretty sprawling one. I mean, you think about Puget Sound Clean Air Agency is going to get involved. SDOT, transportation is going to get involved. City Light's going to get involved. The Regional Homelessness Authority is going to get involved, too. How do we create a plan to respond to what is a climate emergency? And I don't think... We have a great answer to that just yet, and I don't think we have a great answer to these lawsuits either, but this is this intersection of where climate law comes together with local governments, and how do we figure it out? I, I think we're going to hopefully learn some answers in this in this lawsuit, but uh, I, there's a lot of question marks, certainly in Seattle right now. And I think that fire season is really oh, jazzing yeah. things along because all the people who can do something about it, the policymakers, are being affected as well. Mm-hmm. And And the fact that New York City and Washington, D.C. had their experience this year. Well, in Philadelphia and the East Coast in general had their experience this year with fire, you know. From um, Canada, yeah. From Canada. um, You you know, I think you do see the difference, I think, in coverage. You know, we've had smoke seasons in Seattle and the Northwest for, you know, quite a few years at this point. And, and you know, not that they don't get any coverage, but when New York City was shrouded in smoke, it was front page of the New York Times every day, um, which is, you know, as it as it should be. But it, um, I do think that the fact that that, um, you know, smoke has has this particular power of just it's so suffocating and it's so oppressive. And it's just all you can think about all day is what is happening in the environment right now that's making me feel so uncomfortable. And I think the fact that the kind of power centers of this country in New York City and Washington, D.C. have now experienced that, um, you know, worse even than what the West Coast has experienced. Um, who knows if anything will lead to that from, from that, but um, I, I imagine that it drove drove home the urgency to, to a few more people. Hope so. 
So this is um, this trial is ongoing right now, and this judge. I noticed the judge in this Montana case said she could rule that state law doesn't comply with their own state constitution, but she cannot tell the legislature what to do about that. So this is even this case is still a long way from policy. It sounds like it's so it's more about precedent than policy. I think. Yeah, yeah I, would, but I would agree with that. And I, I think you see it here in our state, uh, just in terms of what Labor and Industries is doing right now. They're working on crafting some policies, too, to make sure it's safe for workers to be outside during certain times of year. So I think it's something that all eyes are on this Montana case right now. Right. UPS, I think, just uh, made a deal with its drivers that they would air condition those vans because you're out there all day driving yeah. those vans around. It's 105 degrees. It's not good. Yeah, what can Brown breathe for you? That doesn't sound fun. <laughs> yeah. It seems like the, the parallel with these cases is is tobacco maybe mm-hmm. um, you, yeah. uh, as far as sort of landing a, a blow toward on an on industry and putting blame um, – I, I don't know the particulars super well of the Montana case, but I, I think that landing uh, a legis or a, a legal blow against you know Shell or BP or you know some of the big oil companies um, it's kind of the holy grail for a lot of advocates because then it, it's not just you're sort of fighting climate change in the nebulous you're actually assigning blame and demanding responsibility be taken for that um, you know probably so again sort of maybe similar to the tobacco case maybe similar to some of the opioid litigation that's happened, um, gun manufacturing, gun manufacturing, you know, uh, but even on a bigger scale than that, but unlike all of those, um, you know, I think, I think you could probably show eventually that some of these oil companies knew about climate change, but whether they uh, are responsible for it, um, seems like that might be a, a taller task than even some of those other cases. All right, so we'll watch that Montana case and see what happens in the Northwest as well. Let's turn to another topic here on KUOW's Week in Review. This is the city of Seattle where a federal judge stopped a city from enforcing its anti-graffiti ordinance. You remember during the pandemic, 2021, police arrested four people for writing messages in chalk and charcoal on concrete blocks outside of the SPD East Precinct such messages as F the police. And the arrested people said, well, we were targeted because of our political views. And this week, this district court judge said the city did violate their right to free expression. Brian, as you said, is it free speech meets property rights? It sure seems like it. The The quote that really jumped out at me was, was from Judge Peckman, who said, the criminalization of free speech significantly harms the public interest in far greater measure than the public might benefit crim- from criminalizing property damage. And I think it's it's really trying to get to the message that is within these different things that are scrawled in different places, because some of the case law indicates that back in 2017, I mean, it was a situation where you had police out on the street uh, celebrating with supporters, and they're writing, we heart SPD on in chalk on the ground. Right. Shouldn't they be arrested? I mean, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So I think the challenge with this was, at least initially, it looked like Judge Peckham was going to strike down the entire order when it comes to uh, things that are damaged, uh, public uh, assets that Broken are damaged. Broken windows. Exactly, and right. She's narrowed it uh, yeah. since to just talking about the, um, the graffiti piece, but this is going to be a, a really interesting one to watch pan out. But is the, is it key whether the graffiti is in washable sidewalk chalk versus spray paint? Not in her order. Um, yeah, this just seems like 
an example of, I mean, you know, uh, I, I think perhaps it was implicit in that or that law that you could theoretically prosecute somebody for a chalk drawing before, but the, when SPD made that arrest, they made that explicit, um, which, you know, I, I, I think that if, if that, those particular arrests had never been made, we would never be in this spot. And what about kids who are out there with their sidewalk chalk? I mean, they're well, going to have to get she, in. She, wrote that. That. she yeah. wrote that in her order, and she, she also talked about, uh, you know, could you could you arrest a kid for a, putting a streamer on their friend's bicycle? You know, yeah. stuff like that. Um, so, Meaning to say it's overly broad. It's an overly broad legislation that's going to be, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, cherry pit, you know, Enforced selectively. That's yeah, the right. word. Selectively enforced. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is this is how the law works a lot of the time, or the the legal system works a lot of the time, which yeah. is if you find you can't sort of parse out graffiti from chalk in this case, because in her reading, uh, it was you know chalk and graffiti are treated the same in that, and so therefore you know for as much as for all I know, the judge hates graffiti or anyone might hate graffiti. The fact of that legislation encompassing something like chalk or possibly encompassing something like chalk means the whole thing has to go. Right. Um, but why couldn't she have distinguished legally between what's washable and not washable? Because the law doesn't say that. Yeah. I, oh, okay. I think that's so the whole yeah. point. She's just saying change the law and maybe it can be okay. If, 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 if that's what it takes. But yeah, there's really no distinction between what's written in chalk and what's written in paint. And I know that people have different feelings about each of those, but uh, that's kind of the way the law, the law is basically saying don't write on something if you don't have the permission of somebody to do it. And it doesn't specify chalk's okay, spray paint, you know, the color red's not okay, you know, I, those sort of things. It's, and and before 2020, you know, if we had had this discussion, you would say, well, that's crazy. Of course it means paint and not chalk until suddenly it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then and then you have to consider, well, maybe this, maybe this lawsuit does theoretically criminalize children – drawing during the 4th of July parade or whatever. And mm-hmm. right. she just concluded that it is, and that's uh, a First Amendment violation. You know, the interesting the thing... The hopscotch case. Yeah, oh, exactly. Man. We take you know, the this inter- all the way to the Supreme Court. <laughs> the, interesting, the, the interesting thing to me will be, it, it feels like uh, we're going to talk about the drug um, the drugs, uh, law in, in Seattle here in a second, but it feels a little bit like that, which is you have... You know, in in the drug case, the state supreme court tossing out the drug statute, the le- the state legislature putting a new one in and leaving it up to Seattle to decide how they want to codify that. Um, you know, here here's another case where if Seattle wants to recriminalize graffiti, I think um, they're going to have to go back and write a new law that specifies this because, as far as I know, this graffiti law is dead. You know, we know from the city council that they might not be all that eager to re uh you know begin punishing graffiti people um whereas the state you know the the city attorney we know because during her campaign has made a big deal out of criminalizing graffiti and cleaning mayor harrell's talked about graffiti yeah mayor harrell too so towards it yeah um so this will be kind of a in some ways a replay of what we just saw with the drug statute which is how is the city council going to be willing to sit down and make graffiti illegal again? Um, or are they going to say, you know what, we think there are better ways to deal with this than uh, arresting people for graffiti. Sounds like a juicy campaign issue possibly <laughs> yeah. this fall for sure. Yeah. And people care about this they stuff, do. you know, on, on one side or the other, you know, because you're, you're talking about, you know, how they view their city. But on the other hand, you are talking about first amendment expression. And yeah. so there's a, there's sort of a lot, um, a lot of emotions caught up in something as seemingly small as graffiti. 
Yeah, Joanne, you're nodding. Yeah, I, I think it's a mess <laughs> mm. <laughs> because, yeah, graffiti – I'm one of those people who hate graffiti. I, I don't like being told what to look at or what is art. I, you know, I, I, I have my doubts about some public art. But at least with public art, you know, statues and sculptures, I've got a little bit of a say in it in that I'm electing officials who are presumably watching over that. In graffiti, I have no say. I feel offended. But on the other hand, I certainly want people to be able to express themselves. Yeah, right. All right. Well, um, yeah, we'll see what the city's going to come up with uh, regarding anti-graffiti. Let's. You mentioned we're going to take up this similar situation with what's the city going to do about drug possession, drug use. We'll talk about that. And uh, on the other hand, the City Hall Park opening up, reopening. But what next for City Hall Park? All that stuff is uh, there's a there's a, a taking a radio break between us and that fascinating conversation. Quick break first. Are you enjoying this podcast? Well, you have KUOW members to thank for that. KUOW members make the trusted local journalism and storytelling you hear on this show possible. Become a member today and help support the production of this podcast. It only takes a minute. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. You're listening to KUOW's Week in Review, getting wiser all the time about what took place this week. I'm Bill Radke. You can stream the show on YouTube and Facebook. Search KUOW Public Radio. Either way, you'll be watching or listening to my panel, Seattle Channel host and producer Brian Callanan, freelance health journalist Joe Ansel Berner, Seattle Times transportation reporter David Croman promised you we would talk about this drug use and possession law, so let's do it. This week, Seattle's mayor said... He'll work out some kind of drug use and possession law that can pass the city council. We will pass a law that allows our department to make arrests. I'm unambiguous on that. But we will do that with compassion to protect people when we have to. So last week, the council rejected a law that would have let the city prosecute people for having and publicly using drugs. Mayor Harrell said he does not want to repeat a hurtful, unfair war on drugs. He wants to send nonviolent people to drug treatment and therapy. But we've been discussing that goal for a long time. So why is all this just happening now? I I think it's just centered around the city council vote and what it really means and specifically what happens on July 1st when this new law goes into, into effect at the state level with that Blake bill that we've been talking about over the past several weeks here. But that quote-unquote fix to our state's drug possession law has made drug possession, drug use, public drug use into a gross misdemeanor. So misdemeanors are generally the purview of uh, municipal courts, and that's where the city attorney would get in, get involved, etc. And so usually this it is, isn't as much of a big show. I mean, state laws pass and the cities codify them, and that's the way it goes. In this case, however, I think there is so much concern over, okay, we're having these officers make make arrests. What then? Is that court system the best place to put people who are dealing with drugs? Do we have enough of these treatment or service uh, systems in place such that people can be diverted to them and, and deal with these so we don't have to fill up our jails, et cetera? So I, I think that that July 1st date is something that a lot of people have their eye on. Will we Will we have a lot of answers by July 1st? I'm not quite sure. And isn't that why the city legislation didn't pass? Was It was concerned among those who voted against it that there we didn't have 
things in place that would take care of people. Yeah, I think that's a part of it. Uh, the city also recently pulled out, the city attorney's office recently pulled out of this community court system that could have potentially been an avenue for people who are who were there on low-level drug charges to go into different services or whatever. And why, why did they do that? Because it wasn't working, at least from the city uh, attorney's perspective. Basically, 22% of the people who went in there actually, quote-unquote, graduated, but a lot of people did not. So yeah. Ann Davison was very concerned about that, wanted to make sure that there was a, a better threshold, I guess, for some of those services and diversions that were going on. And it's just, I, I guess, what I see happening potentially July 1st is maybe bits and pieces of this might be in place. Maybe we will actually have this actual law on the books or what have you, but these other portions of it, meaning, okay, what does a different uh, reaction or uh, program from the municipal court look like? What do these services look like over here? How are we going to link those things? I feel like those systems are still a little ways off, but we could be potentially very close to a city council vote. I know a lot of people are, are eager to make that happen. And and it's a particularly unique situation to Seattle because you were talking about the different, you know, most most major cities in the country don't even have a city attorney. Most places have a just basically our equivalent to the King County prosecuting attorney. Yep. So, you know, if this were Philadelphia, for example, it would all fall to Larry Krasner to, but here we have two attorneys with o- overlapping jurisdictions um, in the King County prosecuting attorney and the city attorney's office. But and um, the King County prosecutor says, we don't have the resources to end with. Right. Because yeah, I mean, w- one slight correction to mayor Hurl's uh, comments, you know, the Seattle police department can arrest people right now for drug possession. That's, still illegal. It's yeah. still illegal. Um, the, the question is what happens on the other side. And the King County prosecuting attorney said, you know, her office doesn't have the bandwidth to, to take these up. Um, so we're not going to do it. And so therefore we, and the city attorney's office said, you know, we want to do it. We just need the authority to, um, and so that's kind of where we are, you know, from a political standpoint, I think this is kind of, <laughs> this is sort of a silver platter in some ways for, for mayor Harrell, because it, it gives him the opportunity to do exactly what his kind of you know, his one Seattle campaign, you know, this is a perfect opportunity for Mayor Hill to look like he's coming in and sort of bringing everyone together and finding a solution that balances, you know, law enforcement with treatment. Um, if, of course, that is what ends up happening. Yeah. Well, um, what, what would be new about him riding in with a solution? We've been saying for how long that we and we do we, we do already divert people. Right. Mm-hmm. We have pathways out of the incarceration system to get into treatment, et cetera, therapies. Um, so what's what's brought us to the moment now where it seems like Mayor Harrell's going to solve I don't. I didn't. I didn't say solve. <laughs> I said politically. Politically, it's, he, yeah. he may get a bill passed yeah. uh, that has that says nothing of what happens after the bill is passed. And I which is you know a- the big problem is treatment that there is just yeah. not very much of it. And what what is there is, I think people think of treatment as this. Um, you know, you go to treatment, you come back, and you're treated. Uh, that is yeah. not at all what happens. It, it usually takes several times, and um, there's it's not an A to B progress it usually is a to x with several stops in between so it's really complicated and it's really expensive and it doesn't really exist as as things stand right now i think what's really interesting this time around is words that actually bring fear to my heart a 24 member work group you <laughs> yes. know that he's called in everybody he's called in the police chief the fire chief reach purpose dignity action NAACP. he's uh city council members on both sides of the issue 
if he can pull this off, I think it'll be really impressive. He, he's really got – I think he's got everyone at the table this time. He's got people at the table, but it is going to be the proof in the pudding. And, and like I said earlier, I feel like this is something that's going to roll out in pieces. He had mentioned that the city council can't do this in a week, so we're going to have to wait at least a little bit to see what happens from that, that very narrow legal side of it. Okay, what sort of ordinance is the city going to pass? But then those other parts of how is the court involved? And and I think it's a, an important piece of this. When the city council was considering this legislation, they cannot compel the city as attorney, city attorney's office to do a specific thing. There's a separation of powers there. So in crafting this legislation, they're trying to be careful about that. They're trying to urge the use of these uh, different diversion types of services whatever else, but they can't necessarily compel the city attorney to do that. And I think that's a bit of the bit of the conflict here, too. And then I think I mean, I think even if a bill does make it to the city council, it's still still a pretty good chance it's going to be a five four vote because there are members of the city council who just fundamentally don't believe that a gross misdemeanor is the right way to go. Um, And so they're not going to endorse any sort of tactic that uh, allows drug users. And we should be clear, we're talking about drug users here, not drug dealers. Mm -hmm. Um, because those are likely to be felonies. Um, so, you know, a few members of the council are just going to fundamentally, or just always going to oppose codifying a gross misdemeanor for drug use into the state code. Uh, I think a lot of this is going to dep- come down to what Andrew, Lew- council member Andrew Lewis wants to do, because he was the swing vote on the last one. He said publicly he decided at the last second to vote against it. And his reason was he wasn't sure what um, what was actually in place to help people who are going to be funneled through the, the criminal justice system. Yeah. There's new money coming in, isn't there, from that, uh, that vote for a tax increase? Uh, if you're talking about the crisis care centers yeah. levy, that, that could be potentially one. And actually, the mayor brought that up in his in his press conference. But I'm and I'm interested to see what happens with that on the county level, because that's a walk in type of system and anybody can go there. Police could potentially bring people there that they're, they're dealing with. But I look at that and I think about, OK, when are these actually going to come online? That's yeah. not going to happen tomorrow either. Right. Yeah. So I'm hopeful that those things that there is some urgency to that, that they'll come online quickly. But I do know just from citing just about anything that has even a shred of controversy around Western Washington, that's not going to be easy. You know what came online this week? City Hall Park. Seattle reopened that park by the county courthouse. It closed a couple of years ago after a bunch of violent assaults. This is the voice of Gavin Muller, who works at the courthouse and is glad to have his lunch spot back. It's been kind of a bummer that it's been fenced off. This is kind of my one spot I'd like to go like eat lunch, not inside the courthouse. I hope that it stays open. I hope that it's, it's, a, it's a good environment for people to hang out at. A good environment for people to hang out at. David, what's the city going to do to keep the park a good environment for people to hang out at? Well, I, as I understand it, they're going to have kind of a more consistent ranger presence there with a direct line to the police department. Um, they're also, you know, we've seen this with other parks in the city. I think of Westlake or Occidental Park. They take on this activation approach which is a terrible word but basically means uh you have sort of positive activities like table ban- tennis bands and yeah food table trucks. tennis and food trucks and uh, you try and infuse a park with as much positivity as you can so that uh it's welcoming to all sorts of people and therefore um welcoming to everybody mm-hmm. um concerts you know, they, they have mm-hmm. tried that a bit with city hall park though in the past and as far as i can tell that that hasn't worked you know i think it's part of the reason it became what it was with such a large encampment. I think around the you know around the beginning of the pandemic, the city stopped clearing encampments for the most part, in part on a CDC recommendation to do so. Um, Mayor Harrell has shown 
that he is perfectly willing to to clear out encampments and um you know with with help from from a lot of service outreach and things like that we saw it at ballard commons and um the woodland park i guess yep. uh and so, you know, I think I think what it'll look like, I don't not saying this will work, but I think what it'll look like is some combination of enforcement, outreach, and um, you know, just a lot of food trucks. <laughs> <laughs> and I think too, the unified care team is another piece of this. The mayor's touted that quite a bit. So when encampments potentially do show up or whatever else, there are services right on hand, right at the time to respond to that quickly. And and David, you brought up Ballard Commons, which I think is a another good example of this. The park in Ballard there that closed down during the pandemic due to similar concerns. Dozens of tents in that park area there. They've cleaned that out. That's been open since March. Looks like it's going okay so far, and I think it's following the same kind of idea of of activation, et cetera. Uh, and I think now that we are just about beyond the pandemic, I I, I never want to say that for fear that we're going to get this new mm-hmm. awful variant as we as if we hadn't had enough already. But it, it feels like being beyond the pandemic as we are, I'm I'm hopeful that these places will will activate themselves, I guess, and people will start to engage with them because I really do think that is the answer. An active park is one that is healthy because a lot of people are going there and people don't necessarily feel comfortable sleeping there, etc. Well, well, what I'm, about sleeping, for example? What 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 is the policy going to be? I mean, it's a public park. You, mm-hmm. you know, you it's can, not illegal to be homeless in the park. Yeah, yeah. it's not yeah. illegal to be homeless. I, I, we have seen that the city has uh, exercised its power to to prevent encampments from being in other parks. Again, like Woodland Park, like Ballard Park, um, Ballard Commons. Excuse me. Um, so, you know, I, I think uh, there will be probably some strong arming a, a bit of to prevent people from sleeping there. Um, you or know, what? I'll say. Uh, Go ahead. And in addition to kind of what Brian was saying around the pandemic, you know, I, one thing that I think was a little underappreciated, you know, there's a lot of reporting around it, but when the pandemic happened, tons of services shut down yeah. and a lot of in-person uh, help that people could have sought out uh, basically disappeared. And if you're, you know, homeless and living on the street, your, your access to Zoom is, pro- is perhaps not as good as uh, for office workers. And so I, I think that that, you know, if you, when you talk to service providers, um, they they talk a lot about how much of an impact that had on their ability to uh, maintain current relationships with co- people that they work with and build new relationships. And so, you know, if there's some some reason for hope, it's that I think a lot of those services are opening back up again and are a little more available. Um, so that would be another aspect that would be working in favor of this being a lasting solution. Um, that, that wasn't maybe available a couple years ago. But the challenge, I think, is going to be to get people to come back. I think people mm. are sort of fed up. You know, we've had a number of recent murders that I, I think are spooking people. Mm. And it's really, you know, the idea that we have to get people walking through and making it a living place rather than a overnight place is going to take effort from all of us. Yeah. Big part of the downtown activation plan that the mayor is working on right now. This is a piece of it. And I have to say, there's going to be a lot of scrutiny on City Hall Park because, as you'll remember, originally it was looking like the county was going to take it over and Mm -hmm. make it part of its campus. And now the city's doing it. So I think there's going to be scrutiny at a lot of different levels to make sure they get this right. Yeah. Okay. And and there won't be the the police are not going to be making drug arrests there. They could, but they're not going to, right? Because no one's going to prosecute them. And I don't know that they were before. Yeah, yeah anyway. exactly. Yeah, for strict exactly. possession cases. Yeah, yeah, for strict. For they were for dealing and, and trafficking, but not strict. But they shut possession. that park down. Now it's open, and and we're just sort of wondering what life is going to be like. Yeah. in that park. 
Okay. Uh, one more thing before we take a break. We're, we're, we're here with KOW's Week in Review. Um, we got a couple other uh, news issues to talk about. But did you all hear we're getting a new area code? No. Yeah, I saw that this morning. Yeah, so what? One, just, just a, a quick note here. Once they're out of the 206 numbers, it's, they're going to run out in, in the next year or two. Before that happens, they're going to start assigning the area code 564 huh. to hmm. you know Seattle, Vashon, uh, whoever gets a 206 now, which is going to play into the snobbery of who's lived here the longest. <laughs> I'm going to sell my 206. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Highest bidder. Can, no. can you sell your number? I don't think so. Probably not. <laughs> well, let's find a way. Yeah. <laughs> when I lived in L.A., the city people didn't want the suburban 818 oh, from the it. valley. The downtown people didn't want the snobby 310 from Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. They're keeping it real with the 213, and so we're going to get... But the way I found, as I was looking around about this, did you know that our area code has its own song? No. Not about Seattle. It's about your skeleton. I got bones. I got bones. Bones. When I count my bones, I get 206. I got bones. Uh-huh. I got you now. Okay. Yeah, the adult human skeleton. 206 bones. Now we know. Now we know. So I don't know what there's 564 of, but someone's going to get the 564 here. We'll work on that song for next week. Okay. All right. Should we take a break? That was just too good. I gotta, I gotta relax. <laughs> Calm down. Then we're gonna get back to. Uh, we're gonna talk about what's going on with our commute and why you're commuting. You might see a sign that might make you think of uh, disease or sex or the Titanic. Stay tuned. I got bones. I got bones. Okay. When I count my bones, I get two o six. I got bones. I got bones. It's KUOW's Week in Review, still happening, still streaming on YouTube and Facebook. Just search KUOW Public Radio. We have health journalist Joanne Silberner, Seattle Channel's Brian Callanan, the Seattle Times' David Croman, and I'm Bill Radke. You know, when workers return to the office, they also return to the roads, the cars, and the buses. King County Metro says there were 45,000 more rides last month than the May before that. Metro official Katie Chalmers says a big part of that is Amazon. When they began to make plans for this return to office, they were really working with us and making sure that Metro was ready, and we are. We're ready. Many of our routes still have plenty of room to have more riders on. Amazon recently told about 55,000 corporate employees to return to the office at least three days a week, David. But is this an Amazon effect, transportation reporter David Croman, or or does Amazon just get a lot of attention. No, I think this I think for May it is an Amazon effect. I mean, it's on top of uh, a growth that was already happening. Metro said they were seeing about 15% year over year growth each month. Um I think April was a little bit bigger, but then May was a 22% year over year growth. So that's you know, maybe it doesn't sound like a lot, but that's another 10,000 rides on top of the growth they were already seeing. That's pretty significant. Um, actually, the more illuminating statistic, I thought, was uh, 68 van pools were organized just for May through King County Metro, which is the highest they've ever had since – the highest they've had since 2005 um, because about – apparently of their 800 or so van pools, about a third of them are Amazon employees. Mm. So for whatever reason, van pool is very popular among people commuting from – the east side. And a company can't rent out a county van, right? It's just whoever no, they, signs up for a van that's on your route. Um, no, they, yeah, they well, it's like if you get enough people, then you can create your own 
fan pool yeah. route via King County Metro. Yeah. Well, um, Microsoft has its own. I've seen them around. Microsoft Connect. does have its yeah. own. Amazon does not. Uh, no, Amazon does not. Um, they, they have all the delivery trucks out there, but not, <laughs> not the commuter trucks. So I, I do Synergy. think I yeah, do I think like it. I do think that Amazon um, Amazon's return is is clearly making a difference. In fact, um, right after we published the story on this, we saw some data for. Uh, early June and the growth was was kind of back to what it was pre-Amazon hmm. coming back to the office, which isn't to say they lost ridership. But as far as the percentage of growth, um, it, it looked like it had kind of gone back a little bit to earth. So that suggests that the addition of those 55,000 people hmm. really did uh, fill the buses. And and we see it in other, in other statistics too. Enrics, which is a locally based traffic and analytics firm, they do stuff nationally, but they said that traffic was 35% slower, particularly on I-90 and 520, um, which they called the Amazon effect. Downtown Seattle Association said that they saw more foot traffic mm-hmm. in May than they had since you know, February of 2020, um, especially around Denny Triangle near Amazon. And you don't, you know, it's, if you go down to the Amazon campus, because the Seattle Times building is kind of right on the edge of the Amazon campus, so I have a pretty good view into it. Uh, you know, there's lines down the block at food trucks. And it was the only time I have been in a Seattle neighborhood in the last three years and thought, you know, this feels like hmm. 2019 or pre-pandemic. It's yeah. legitimately pretty crowded down there. I like the Amazon van pool idea because they could just like drop off packages on the way to work. <laughs> deliver, me yeah, to, yeah. deliver me to work. Here we go. Yeah. 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 If I, you don't pay for Prime, then you take a little longer. There you go. Deliver. Right, 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 right. Good point. Yeah, you, get, you don't get to use the carpool lane. Yeah. No, and just, just dovetailing on that, David, I thought it was interesting to see these metrics we're talking about from the downtown Seattle Association, foot traffic foot traffic is up, the visitors are up, the number of visitors is up, hotel room demand is up, occupied apartment units. So is it at that space right now where it's completely all pre-pandemic? No, a number of those measures are getting close. The one that's still sticky is that whole office occupancy thing. Yeah. And it's right at about that 50% mark right now compared to pre-pandemic. It's rising. I mean, the trends are going up there, but it's certainly not you know, snap of the fingers back to where it was. And I think that's one a lot of people are keeping an eye on. Which for me is kind of the big question facing transit agencies, because when they look at uh, off-peak hours, which means the um, you know, middle of the day, even, like night times, weekends, times considered, you know, outside of rush hour, if you take all that, they're basically back to where they were pre-pandemic. In fact, in some ways higher, where they're not at all back to normal is those commuter hours. Um and and so much of our system was built around getting people into the office. I've done a, a few stories in the last few months on the Sounder, which is the train that um, goes from Lakewood to Seattle and then up to up to Edmonds. Um, and and that to me is the kind of purest distillation of the state of commuters because it doesn't run except for during commuter hours, really. And that is still at thirty percent of pre-pandemic ridership. It's just not mm-hmm. seeing that come back. Um, and so it puts transit agencies in this kind of interesting situation where they are, they're doing something that in some ways they wanted to do for a long time, which was um, de-emphasize peak hours and grow service outside of commuter hours. But it's just happened so quickly and suddenly that now they kind of ha- have to decide, you know, where do we lean? Do we, do we work really hard to win those commuters back and spend a bunch, bunch of money doing so? Or do we think about transforming our whole system so that it's not built around those commuter hours nearly as much as it used to be um and you know try and convince people to ride the bus in other times of day and you know go to the 
restaurant on a bus instead of driving there and that sort of thing. So it's a very interesting turning point right now for transit agencies. Well, And if parking spaces keep disappearing, we're going to have mm-hmm. no choice. <laughs> yeah, well, Sound Transit just decided to spend $350 million right. building parking garages near the Sounder, um, right. which is which is an interesting choice because, yeah. as we just talked about, um, people aren't riding it right now. So that's a $350 million bet that eventually people will again. And um, you know, that exudes a certain amount of confidence, but it's also not entirely clear that um, people will, in fact, start commuting on transit again. Yeah, not there yet. I, by the way, I've been reading a conspiracy theory in the comment section of your newspaper, David. <laughs> that I Amazon, don't know that's a good always idea. Always a good idea, yes. <laughs> oh, it's a pit. The, uh, but uh, the, the theory is that Amazon is telling workers to return to the office so that they can fire people who complain instead of having to lay them off with severance. Oh boy! Do you want to debunk that or, I don't con- or confirm that? Yeah, I don't understand the logic on that. I don't. I don't okay. can't follow that argument very well. Why would that allow that them because, to? Because you know, Amazon. Amazon has been laying people off, and so here they could just make the job less desirable, and the people who are are on the bubble uh, on the margins are just going to drop hmm. away. I think that's a little too cute for Amazon. I yeah. think they are. F- Fully uh, prepared and capable of laying people off without an excuse. <laughs> yeah, and and they're they're just and in they're a better doing. position right now than yeah. the than the workers are. I mean, that's you know these are jobs that are in demand and layoffs are happening. So I, okay. that's a piece of it. Well, and that's why people I think are being told to come back to the office is because they don't the workers just don't have the leverage that they did a couple of years ago. There's right. just not the same level of hiring. Yeah. One bus question I'm meaning to ask you: okay. Are um, are bus agencies okay with passengers standing? Because my my Sound Transit bus is now you know standing room only every yeah. every day, every morning hmm. and, and and evening. It seems a little less safe to me. I'm a stander anyway, but is it? Are they designed to be? To have standards in, them. I mean, yeah, like the got train, the, got the hand, they, handles. they got the straps, but the train is theoretically not going to lurch and uh, slam on its brakes when there's an accident right in front of it, right? That that it feels a little less safe to me to be where I can fly around the coach. But is that a yeah. non-issue? Like two, you're going to stand? Yeah, no, I yeah. mean, it's uh, bef- before the pandemic, it was almost you know almost yeah. every bus you were standing. Yeah. So if it was a problem, they'd have to buy a lot more buses and hire a lot more people. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, let's talk about, so you're on, you're, you're commuting, you're on the bus, you're headed back to the office, you are near Boren and Yesler, or you're near the Seattle Center, and you see an intriguing billboard, uh, health reporter, Joanne Silberner, when is gonorrhea like an iceberg? What's going on with these billboards? Oh, man. Well, they're trying to bring attention to gonorrhea, and uh, the, the, there's been a slow increase Actually, what happened was over. there was a big increase about 10 years ago. Now the increase has slowed, but uh, it's a group uh, uh, devoted to helping people with AIDS to try and get people aware of gonorrhea as a sexually transmitted disease, and you've got to watch out for that. But actually, so the, the billboard says drug-resistant gonorrhea. Is right. that something that's really on the rise? Not according to the health department. Uh, it, it is on the rise in small numbers, but the drug resistance is to a drug uh, called the. Zit- Let me. I have to look at this up to, to make sure that I get this right. It's against one drug, but it is still sensitive to another drug. So the health department itself is not all up in arms about this. They're actually most concerned about syphilis. And when I was talking to them, I learned something that I didn't know, which was that uh, 
a few years ago, or actually just this past November, they are were asking that all sexually active women 45 and under to be tested for syphilis. Mm-hmm. I had no I I missed that one completely. Um, there's, they cited a five-fold increase in syphilis in women since 2015. Mm-hmm. That's the bigger problem that they see. So the, the folks who put up the gonorrhea board, they're concerned about gonorrhea within, I think, mostly within the AIDS community and... Uh, it's well, what's the connection issue. between gonorrhea and AIDS? Well, I, the same things that will get you AIDS will get you gonorrhea. Yeah. And, and also, if you have gonorrhea or if you have AIDS, you're much more prone to infection. Right. And let's say you have gonorrhea, you leave it untreated, sores, et cetera. That can, that can also uh, make it easier for HIV to enter the body. Right. I think that's a piece of it as well. But yeah. I got to say, in doing some research about this and you know you start googling gonorrhea you get all sorts of crazy emails coming away so oh. thank, thank you bill for, for bringing this up yeah yeah it's, it's been right. nice but i i think it's it's uh it's a public awareness campaign mainly to okay if, if maybe the antibiotics are, are are doing all right but if we don't have the whole concept of sexual health working on in 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 tandem with that then yeah, then it could turn into a larger problem. But uh, I was shocked by seeing these these billboards too. <laughs> was de- but that's what it was meant to do. So yeah, and clearly I think it got anything, people's attention. You know, gonorrhea, syphilis, anything that brings attention to these treatable diseases, preventable diseases, is a good thing. Yeah, this this is well. It seems to be working because uh, it's on the in the Seattle Times, and now here we there are you talking go. We're about, talking it, right? about um, it. Yeah, so it, it's, it's a good thing. I, I think it is also a bit of a. I don't know if uh, symptoms, probably not the right word, but symptom of a larger uh, issue, which is that, um, at least as far as I understand, I don't know what the trends are lately. Maybe you know, Joanne, but in the first couple of years of the pandemic, there were some notable increases in other STDs. Um, You know, we also saw things like decline of vaccination rates for things like measles and mumps. And, um, and so I think, I think there was kind of a larger trend of um, because public health departments were so laser focused on COVID and devoting all of their resources to COVID, we'd lost a little bit of ground on some of these other diseases. Um, and so, you know, it, it seems like maybe this is kind of part of an effort to to pick up the ball where we where we left it before. Yeah, that's fair. All right, now you know. In case you've seen these billboards with mm-hmm. the uh, with the freighter hitting the iceberg. <laughs> Um, and speaking of freighter, by the way, it's time to we're, we're n- near the end of the show. We've got about five minutes left. And um, I don't know if you were exactly smiling about this, Brian, but you told me the story of a freighter mishap that turned into a sculpture that turned into a, a, a mystery. <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> mystery sculpture. Yeah. Good old, good old were, Rolf Nesland. Uh, the Seattle Times again. Told Seattle the Times story. was talking about this, and, and there's this rogue sculpture that showed up in West Seattle where I happen to live. And so this was the captain who actually ran his boat into the West Seattle Bridge, ca- causing a long-term closure many, many years ago. And infamous guy was ended up ended up being dismembered by his wife. It, it's a p- pretty grisly story, but I think, uh, well, West Seattle being the resilient folks that they are, someone put together this statue of his bespectacled head uh, kind of on the trail that goes right around the Pigeon Point neighborhood. It's very, very close to uh, to the West Seattle Bridge. And I was just biking by there the other day, and I hate to say it, but uh, someone had already put like a little graffiti on it. Like they started <laughs> oh, writing on it. Like, Come on. Um, so anyway, uh, uh, Rolf Nestlund, uh, it's, it's a bit of a throwback in, in West Seattle's history, but it's an infamous name that I think many people are going to remember for a long time. And the plaque they put on this thing was actually 
uh, <laughs> well-crafted. I, I hope that it's able to stick around uh, with a little bit of a smile on our faces thinking about it. And, and wasn't he credited with bringing the, the – That's right. The, 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 new the new bridge. The new bridge. The high bridge. Credited with getting the bridge was because of him. Yeah. I was going to say, we, have, we were, had held Rolf Nestle never existed. It's possible we never would have replaced – had to shut down West Seattle for but a couple of years. Wouldn't it have been though. better if they had a bridge that worked for its whole <laughs> lifespan? Just throwing it out yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Aye, aye, Captain. Um, also, I, I'm going to contribute that KOW has this podcast called 10,000 Things, which is about objects that tell us something about Asian American life. And the latest episode's about our voices. And we meet a writer and podcaster named Alice Wong, who speaks using a text-to-speech app because of medical issues, and she really misses her natural voice. It was such an expression of my snarkiness, bitchiness, and humor. My razor-sharp wit comes out clearly and quickly through my speech. Alas, I cannot do this anymore, although if people look at me, they'll see my facial expressions and know exactly what I'm feeling, but it's still not the same. So lately, Alice Wong has been advocating for diversity and the rights of people with disabilities. And she says we just need more diverse kinds of voices on the radio. Ideas of what is considered a good voice gate keep marginalized people making them feel they can't take up space and sound. And the reality is there is space and sound for all of us. So the host of this series is Shinyi Pai, who's also Seattle's civic poet. And I'm telling you, every podcast should be hosted by a poet. I love the way she chooses words. I do that series about words in your Week in Review podcast feed called Words in Review, but I am no poet, and I think you'll like this podcast. 10,000 Things with Shinyi Pai, wherever you get your podcasts, or you can find out more at KUOW.org slash podcasts. That makes me smile. What else is making you smile this week? Well, for me, it was actually talking to Andrea Rogers at our Children's Trust, which is the law firm that is bringing the uh, the case in Montana, because she was just so excited. This is the, cli- the kids suing over the, climate change. The kids change. suing over climate change, and she was just so excited about the idea and it moving along in the courts and and it and the importance of what was going on and just loving her job. It was just a, that really made me smile. Yeah, that's one of the nice things about being a journalist is interviewing people, dedicated people who know a lot and just yeah. get fired up. Yeah, and I'm always amazed that because of a lot of being a journalist is just asking people to do stuff for you and to take time <laughs> out of their day to yeah. talk yes. to you when, when they don't have any obligation to do so. And I'm amazed at how often people agree yeah. to do it. And yeah, I agree that that makes me smile also. I had to throw one more in there, okay. Bill, just because it's coming up this weekend, the Solstice Parade. Oh, oh yeah. yes. Huge fan. And uh, if you really want to look at a fun website, solsticecyclist.org. Uh-oh. Okay. <laughs> I think you know it's safe for work? No, it's, it's kind of safe for work, it's, <laughs> but it's got this frequently asked questions section. Uh-huh. I, I didn't even know that I was supposed to ask those questions. Yeah. <laughs> I just d- didn't even know what I didn't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you can't un- not know that. No, now, yeah. now, I, now I know too much. So right. you're going as an observer We'll now. see how this goes. We'll, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if there's enough paint out there. Whoa. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, well, tell us the story. Next time we see you, Seattle Channel host and producer Brian Callanan. Good to see you. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Bill. Of course. Freelance health journalist Joanne Silberner. Thank you, Joanne. 
Seattle Times transportation reporter David Croman. Thank you, David. Thanks so much. And you know, Week in Review happens because of the support we get from subscribing contributors. We'd kind of like to do more of this kind of work for you, so make this show happen by donating to KUOW. Thank you to our producer, Kevin Kanistad, and for social media and live streaming expertise, Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. Thank you for uh, Bernard Ouellette running the board, making it sound great. I'm Bill Radke, and I uh, hope you enjoyed the show and that you'll be with us another time and maybe make it a real habit. Hope to see you again next week on Week in Review.